good morning, listeners, and welcome to Come and See Inspirations on this, the 19th of September. It's the 25th Sunday in Ordinary Time. My name is John Keeley, and help me to present the programme as usual. Uh, my good friend, Shane Ambrose. Good morning to you, Shane. Good morning, John. How are we keeping? Good. Thanks a lot for joining me, Shane. And now Shane will also join me in welcoming our listeners who are, who are housebound, lonely and struggling, and we know there's some of them out there who are in that situation. We hope that, again, today we'll bring you some support, uh, some encouragement in terms of um, the programme content and also the music that we play. But thanks again for your support in terms of prayer for us each week. Our programme uh, does include interviews and chat and faith topics, inspirational music, and, of course, reflecting on the Sunday Gospel. All of our programmes can be heard at comeandseeinspirations.buzzbread.com. Just Google Come and See Inspirations and you'll find us there. Also on Spotify, iTunes, and, of course, on our Facebook page by, again, onto Facebook and searching for Come and See Inspirations. If you want to contact us, please please do so. You can do that, that by texting 087-6088-667. That's 087-6088-667. Or email inspirations at gmail.com. And again, at this uh, point of the program each week, Shane will share some some saints for the week or, or guardian angels or, or somebody, sort of saints who have gone in previous times uh, might be able to guide us by how they live their life. Maybe. We'll see. Shane, what have you got for us? So in terms of this week, so as John said, it's the 25th week in Ordinary Time. And for those of us praying the Psalter, we're on week one. So, Saints of the Week this week. Um, well, we'll see how it goes. So, Monday, Monday the 20th of September is the feast day of St. Andrew Kim Taegon. He's a priest and he's martyr companions. And they are the Korean martyrs. And they were they died during the persecutions of the church in Korea between 1839 and 1867. Now, as it happens, in last week's Irish Catholic, there was an article about these boys because, if I can just pull it out, give me one second, John, um, they found remains. There was excavations going on in Korea, and they have found remains of the Korean martyrs. So I just want to pull it up. So there, I'll come back to that in a second. So Tuesday, then, the 21st of September, is the feast day of St. Matthew the Apostle. Now, I always have a particular bit of attention for this day because once upon a time, I used to work in um, accountancy uh, for companies. And the 21st of September used to be the big filing date for filing your tax return. And I always found it, I always found it a bit interesting that the date for filing your tax return happened to be the feast day of St. Matthew, who was the apostle, who happens to be patron saint of tax collectors. You know, so that's poor old St. Matthew. So a tax collector, also known as Levi, the son of Alphaeus. Um, he is said to have been a missionary in Persia and oddly in Ethiopia. Now, they're completely two different parts of the world, so I'm not quite sure how they reconcile that particular story. And then, obviously, uh, patron saint of accountants, bookkeepers, tax collectors, customs officers, and security guards. So all those guys that are mining the shops from uh, uh, that uh, they, he's their patron saint on Tuesday. Then on Wednesday, we have the feast day. It's the 22nd of September. So just opening my tabs here in front of me. It's the, I picked out a guy called 
Blessed Giovanni Battista Bonetti. Yeah, he's the Bonetti. He's the Bonettis up there from Tune. Okay, thank you. <laughs> okay. I knew there was a connection. Thanks. He's a he's a 17th century saint from or, or blessed rather from Turin in Italy, and um, he was a physically small and humble little guy. He joined the Franciscans in 1635, and he was appointed to a house in Piobiesi Piranesi. I have no idea where that is. He's sent to North Africa as a missionary, and he, because of his public preaching of Christianity, he was arrested. Uh, it was obviously a, a Muslim part of the world at the time. He was arrested, he was tortured, he was dragged through the street by horses and ultimately uh, executed. Breakfast warning, he was burned to death on the 22nd of September in 1654 in Tripoli in Libya. So that's our friend, Blessed Giovanni Battisti Bonetti. I love the name. That's why I picked him up this morning, John. I'm sorry. Do you know, he just so rolls off the tongue. <laughs> I've got a feeling what you're doing, you're practising, because you're probably going to take a trip away to Italy in one of these days. And you just practise in your accent and just... Oddly enough, yeah, there's a potential trip on the way, but maybe we'll see <laughs> where we're going. So Thursday the 23rd is the feast day of Saint Padre Pio. Padre Pio, of course, a very popular saint. Very A lot of people have devotion to him. Padre Pio of... Uh, Petrosalina, is that how you pronounce that's it? That's it, man. Good lad, Shane. That's, that's, okay. okay. So obviously, at 15, he entered the Novitiate of the Capuchins in Marconi in Italy, and he joined the order at the age of 19, and he was ordained in 1910. And in, in 1918, on the 20th of September 1918, uh, bef- praying before the cross, uh, he received the stigmata, which is the marks of the wounds of Christ from the cross. And he was the first priest to be blessed by getting the stigmata. Now, it's interesting. Uh, Francis of St. Francis of Assisi is also said to have received the stigmata. But, of course, Francis was never ordained a priest. The farthest he went up in terms of ordination was he was a deacon. So um, so the, the stories, are the, the stories of, the, of the devotion to Padre Pio spread quickly after World War II. And um, he would hear very, of course, renowned in terms of his ability with confessions, been able to being able to read consciences and read people, I suppose. Um, set up the hospital, of course, in the, the founded the whole house for the release of the suffering in 1956, which is in San Giovanni Rotondo. And um, and then he uh, he died in 1968 of natural causes, and he was canonized in 2002 by John Paul II. One of the course, one of the things, of course, it is that Padre Pio suffered a lot in terms of skeptics and things during his own lifetime, and even afterwards in terms of the the cause for his canonization. So it took a while to get him canonized in uh, in two thousand two. But a lot of people have a very strong devotion to Padre to, to Padre Pio, uh, and so we celebrate his feast day on the twenty third of uh, September. Now. Same time on the Irish calendar, we also have the feast day of Saint Eunan. I think is how is how you pronounce the guy's name, and he is associated with Johnny Gall. He was born around six twenty four, died six about died in seven o four. I beg your pardon. And he was a monk in Iona and was chosen to be the abbot there in six seventy nine. And um, he's known because he was one of down to the, uh, the present day. It, he wrote the life of St. Colum Kill, which is still uh, a reference for the life of Colum Kill, uh, um, that famous saint as well. John, Friday the 24th of September, I said I'd flag this one to you. It's the feast day of Our Lady of Walsingham. 
Ah, thank you very much indeed. Yeah, I know. I talked, yes. So people might remember a couple of years ago, we have done one or two programs on Walsingham, which is in England. It is, I suppose, for Irish people, the easiest way to explain it, it's the knock of England. And I'm specifically using the term England as opposed to the UK. It's because it's very much associated with Marian devotion in England. And um, in 1061, um, Lady Richeldes de Fervesh, Lady of the Manor near the village of Walsingham, uh, had a spiritual experience where she believed she was taken to Nazareth. And Our Lady asked her to build a holy house in Walsingham, which she immediately did so. And it became, its fame spread and became a renowned place of pilgrimage in England and, and was a huge place, particularly for royal uh, pilgrimages as well. Um, the, the house, unfortunately, the, the, the shrine was stripped during the Reformation and the dissolution of the monasteries by Henry VIII, despite the fact that it was one of the first places in England to accept the oath of supremacy, unfortunately. Um, so, and then the, there was a very famous statue of Our Lady of Walsingham. So it's um, the statue, Our Lady of Walsingham, it's a, an enthroned, Our Lady enthroned with the child Jesus on her lap and she's holding a crowned statue and holding um, the lily, the sign of her virginity. A very famous statue, and it was said to have been taken to London and burnt. Um, um, then in, the, in 1896, the, the old Slippers Chapel was, 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 was bought and donated to Downton Abbey, and it started the process of, of its rejuvenation as a place of pilgrimage in England to the current day. And it's now an ecumenical pilgrimage site, both for the Church of England and also for Catholics. And the statue of Our Lady, a new statue of Our Lady, was re-enshrined in 1922. And there's actually, as far as I'm aware, um, there is uh, there's big developments going on there. They're redeveloping the shrine as a place of pilgrimage, both the Catholic shrine and the Church of England shrine as well. And of course, very much associated with it is the the personal ordinator ordinate of the chair of Saint Peter for Anglicans um, has Our Lady of Walsingham as their patron. Now, in case you're wondering what that's about, that is Anglicans that have come into communion with the Catholic Church, but still use a lot of the traditions of devotions and liturgy that they have brought from their Anglican history. That's what the ordinature is. But anyway, so that's Our Lady of Walsingham. Feast day is the 23rd or 24th of September, I beg your pardon. And then finally, John, on the 25th, we have the feast day of St. Finbar. And of course, Finbar, very much associated with Cork, and Gugan Barra lived there as a hermit. And he, when, when disciples gathered around him, he moved to Cork at the mouth of the Lee where he founded a monastery. And um, so that's, so, so that's uh, Finbar who we, we, we uh, celebrate uh, on, the 20, uh, on the 25th of um, 25th of September. And even right down to the current day, he is remembered the official motto of the University College Cork, UCC, is where Finbar taught, let Munster learn, uh, which obviously, of course, makes reference to the foundation of the city of Cork by Saint. So that's where we are, John, in terms of Saints of the Week. I will come back to you about those Korean martyrs in part two of the programme. Okay, Shane, thanks a lot for that. Very comprehensive. And thanks again for reminding us of a lady of Walshikam. It, it, it's a very well uh, attended pilgrimage site for both, as Shane said, uh, for both Catholics and Anglicans. And I was there myself a few times. But now in this part of our program, we'll uh, pray the spirit to com- 
communion prayer for those who can't receive Jesus at Mass this morning and would very much like to. Of course, the best way to receive Christ is in Holy Communion at Mass. Yet for those times you can't, uh, you can't get to Mass, you can still reach out to him by making a spiritual communion. And this is the, the prayer we always pray each, each, uh, each week on the programme. My Jesus, I desire to receive you into my soul. Since I cannot now receive you sacramentally, come spiritually into my soul. I embrace you as being already there. I unite myself wholly to you. Never permit me to be separated from you. Amen. So now we'll go for our first bit of music this morning. A piece of music that I picked now is something that actually that I've had in my collection for some time, but I haven't uh, got into playing it. It's um, it's some flute music. It's entirely healing flute music, I suppose. Could, it could be described that. This one is played by Seamus Brown, and this one is entitled Irish Morning. So I hope you enjoy this, and come back and join us in part two.
So welcome back again to the second part of Come and See Inspirations. My name is John Keeley, still joined by Shane Ambrose. Now in this part of the programme, as I uh, said at the outlet in the introduction, we usually also try to include some current faith topics, something that might be uh, on people's radar, it mightn't be on people's radar around the Catholic world uh, these days. So Shane and myself might try to introduce some of the items. Shane, where, do we, where would you like to start? I like the way you put it. Now, it's not just the Catholic world. It's the world in general, I suppose, but okay. which might have a face perspective on it. Okay. Um, where do I want to start? Actually, John, what I want to do is I want to pick up on something we were on about last week, which is um, the centenary of the Legion of Mary. Hmm. So I mentioned last week that there was a celebration to mark the centenary of the Legion of Mary, but what I hadn't realized as well was as part of that coverage, there was an update about the cause for Frank Duff. So a couple of weeks ago, we did a program about up-and-coming Irish saints who the cause their, their, the process from getting them canonized was moving along. And one of them is Frank Duff, the founder of the Legion. And it's actually, it's an interesting one. The process is moving along. Now, it took a while because Frank Duff, during his lifetime, and he died at the age of 91, so he was no spring chicken when he passed on. <laughs> he wrote over 33,000 letters. And now I have no idea how they've come up with that number or where they got those. I presume someone must have kept copies of them. But all of those numbers, all of those letters had to be examined as part of the whole thing for his cause for canonization to say what he said and he did and what he wrote about. So that process is now done. And it's in what's called a historical commission, which has been chaired by a priest of the Dublin Archdiocese. And hopefully um, the, the, the plan is that that whole process is coming to a close and that be able to present the report to the Archbishop of Dublin, who hopefully in turn will be able to uh, give the go-ahead for it to go to Rome. And it's interesting because the, the, the Archbishop Farrell described Frank Duff last week as a prophetic in the true Christian sense of the world, word. Um, so it was, just, it was just interesting and timely as well that all was kicking off last week. Now, another thing I just want to draw people's attention to is there was a news out last week, which many people probably didn't even register on their radar. And that was the announcement by the Bishop's Conference that we are going to get a new lectionary. Now, what does that mean for the normal man and woman in the queue? Mm -hmm. So, okay. So, as people know, we have the Missal, which is the big book that the priest uses to say Mass. And it has all the different prayers of the Mass inside it and all the different parts of the Mass. And people remember, going back to 2011, we got a new Missal. And that was the whole thing, you know, the Lord be with you and with your spirit. That whole thing mm -hmm. that we did. 11. Yeah. But as part of that whole process, there's other things that are being revised. So they're revising, for example, the liturgy for weddings, the liturgy for communions, the liturgies for uh, confirmations, the rite of exorcism, and the office, the breviary has to be updated. So all of these things are going on in the background. And of course, because we are an English-speaking country for the purposes of liturgy, predominantly English-speaking, um, we link in normally with um, the US and Canada and, and England and Scotland and Wales and English countries, English speaking countries in Africa and Australia and so on and so forth to do all that kind of work. But one thing where we're going to have a slight difference in the world is actually going to be with the lectionary. Now, the lectionary basically is the book 
where all of the readings, so the little, all the readings which are proclaimed at mass are included. That's the lectionary, okay? So we currently use, the current lectionary that we use was, was approved, I think it was 19, either 69 or 72, okay? And um, it's based on what's called the Jerusalem Bible. That's the translation that's used. Now, mm-hmm. it's the same all over the world, but it is and it isn't. So what the Vatican does, or what the Holy See does, is it says, on this particular Sunday, these are the readings that we will use. Okay. Okay? Mm-hmm. So everyone uses the same readings. But the problem is, it's up to the local bishops' conferences to decide what translation of the readings will be used. So, for example, most of the original you know, scripture that we have is either in Greek or Hebrew. Down to the centuries, that was in Latin. For, the, for us as, as Catholics. Mm-hmm. And then in the 20th century, there was a huge burst of activity in terms of biblical studies and, bib- and scripture studies and translations and getting back to the originals and what, the people, what, what, what did the originals say and translating it and representing that to people. So that's where this is all coming out of. So there's been huge work in scripture, um, but it's been very, it's an ecumenical endeavor. And so there's now what are called updated translations of the Bible. So in church at the moment, we use what's called the Jerusalem Bible. So it's a particular translation. It was done in the Holy Land at the the Lakol Bibliothèque in Jerusalem. And the problem with it is it was a translation from the Greek and the Hebrew to French. And the problem is most people then, when they're translating the Jerusalem Bible, they translate from the French to whatever language they want to use, as opposed to going back to the original source. Okay. So that's the Bible that we currently use, and we've been using it for years. And then the difference is the Psalms are slightly different, but in general, that's the version we use. So this has been up for review since 2011. So the uh, American bishops have come out, and they've decided they're going to use the what's called the North American Bible, the Canadian bishops have decided that they are going to use another particular version of the translation. So the Irish bishops announced last week that we are now going to use the 2019 revised New Jerusalem Bible. That's going to be our new translation that we're going to use for the lecturing. So we're replacing the 1966 variety. Now, it's an interesting one. Um, the bishops have said that, well, well, one of the reasons why we've, we had to get a new translation is the last version of the Jerusalem Bible that was published was done in 1984. So we're kind of running out of copies. And it wouldn't really be worth our while to go and print it again. Um, you know, so, and then there was a whole, you know, and it's, it's not as simple as just reprinting that version. There's a whole new load of saints added in. There's different changes like you know the word of the lord versus this is the word of the lord um so we're getting what's we're getting a new translation and it's based on the revised um the revised new jerusalem bible however the problem is now this is going to cause an issue because it's a different version to what's being used in scotland england and wales Mm -hmm. because they're using what's called the catholic standard version the english standard version catholic edition so now what's going to happen is you're going to have different versions of the same readings used between the two islands. So it's going to be nice and confusing for everybody. Um, so for our listeners, that's something that you're just going to have to be aware of as we go forward. Now, the other side of it is it's, you know, it's not exactly going to be a case of uh, this isn't going to happen overnight. 
probably looking at something that people will start noticing the difference a couple of years down the line. And uh, But it makes a difference. Um, what I would say to people is, if you want to see the impact of this, um, Glenstall Abbey uses the Canadian version of the Bible for their liturgies. And I tell you this much, if you're sitting there or you're watching it online and you're listening to the gospel or the readings as they're proclaimed, it will, you will notice a difference in the translation. It, it makes a huge difference in terms of the way that we hear something proclaimed. And it's very important because obviously the word proclaimed, the word of God, mm, yeah. is which is very, it's of key importance um, for, 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 Catholic, for Christians in general, because we are, we are people of the word. Um, I suppose one of the things people say, well, why are they changing it? Mm, yeah. Well, there's different reasons, I suppose. Um, there was practical issues because we're running out of copies. Uh, but also there is the issue of things like um, inclusive language. So, you know, sometimes I don't know what it's like for our sisters and others. And they're sitting in the congregation and the reading is... Mm-hmm. Brothers, this is what you must do. Yes, you know, when someone's yes. reading from the letter of St. Paul, it's got to be a bit jarring. So it's like, you know, there'll be things like brothers and sisters. So there'll be small little changes like that to make it a bit more inclusive for people. Um, so it's just it's it's just things to be aware of. So I just thought that was an interesting one, John. Shane, um, just just before you leave that, there's nothing major. Uh, there, w- there would be no major differences between the various translations. It's just things like... If we call that not major, brother or brother or brothers and sisters, I know that's important. Um, I would quite say there's no major differences. Um, and you see, this is this is this is this is one of the challenges, I suppose, and and this is one of the things I would say to people. Um, you know the way we do we do our lecture divina and we do our reflection on scripture. One of the things one of the things that sometimes people are encouraged to do is to look at the same passage in different editions of Scripture, in different editions of the Bible, mm-hmm. and to see how it is presented. Because ultimately, we're working through English, and that is a translation of the Greek and the Hebrew. Now, you and I don't speak Greek or Hebrew, John, so you know we have to rely on what's put in front of us. But the way things are translated, it can make a difference to how people hear it. And it, it is something, it's, it's a nuance. It's, uh, it's, it's just something, I suppose, that people will have to see um, and hear, uh, you know, to, to, to understand what the difference is. But I suppose one of the things is, John, you know, because we've used the same version of Scripture since 1966, um, the language of Scripture, the language of the readings is familiar to us. And I suppose one of the things we often say when we're doing the Lexion Part 3 of the program is, because we've heard the, the, the scripture proclaimed again and again and again, it can be too familiar. This translation, the, the, this change of the translation is going to wake that up for us ever so slightly. Is it worth to, to, have, to have the risk of people saying, look, no way in the world am I going to accept this new change because we're all over the shop now. If I go to Canada or wherever I go, I'm going to get different versions and I'm going to get confused. <laughs> No, the differences are not going to be that extreme that you would be confused. Okay. It's differences in it's differences in it's differences in translation, and that's just coming down to choice of words. Okay. There's the ultimate the the old the the, the 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 kernel of it isn't going to change. Okay. 
Got it. So the next thing, the next thing now, linking back to our friends in Korea. So I said at the first part of the program, we are celebrating the, um, the Korean saints on Monday the 20th. As part of that, there was an article in the paper recently where um, remains of the first South Korean Catholic martyrs were discovered, actually. They've been recovered after more than two centuries after their death. And that it's been confirmed that they are the remains of two of the earliest martyrs in Korea who were beheaded in 1791 and another one who's, who was martyred in 1801. I'm not even going to try to pronounce their names, okay? I can tell you the, I can tell you the first name. One was Paul and one was James, but I, the second, the surnames, I'm not even going to try, okay? Um, and it's just, it's just an interesting one. Now, uh, Pope Francis beatified them in, in, in 2014 when he visited Korea. And their remains were recovered. One was in March, and the other is, which is an interesting one, of course. Um, and it's also, uh, they can, they've done analysis in terms of both DNA, but also examine the remains of some of the bones just to verify the accounts of the martyrdom. And that's all very much held up. Christianity came to Korea during the Japanese invasion in 1592 when some Koreans were baptized. Um, it's very much a lay, it was very much lay-led uh, evangelization. And, um, but they faced persecution kind of from the 1780s onwards because the Korean rulers began to see Catholicism as a false religion that denied Confucian ethics and invited Western imperialism to the country, which they didn't particularly obviously want. Huge persecution in the 18th and 19th centuries. And the largest persecution was in 1866 when over 8,000 martyrs were died for the faith. Um, you know, and the guy we mentioned earlier, Andrew Kim Taeong, he was actually 25 when he was beheaded in 1840. Um, Pope John Paul II canonized 103 of the martyrs in 1984 during his visit to the country. So the church in Korea is celebrating the 200th anniversary of St. Andrew Kim's birthday this year, actually. So it's, um, it's an interesting one to note, particularly as the feast day is next week. So, Joe, that's those ones. So now, moving further afield, and this time we're crossing the pond, we're crossing the Atlantic, across to our neighbours, and we're going to Harvard University. So Harvard got in the news recently because they have elected an atheist as their head chaplain. Harvard University was founded by the Puritan settlers 400 years, 400 years ago. And, but the interesting thing is there's a gentleman, Greg Epstein is his name, and he is the first atheist elected president of Harvard's organization of chaplains. He has been the university's humanist or atheist chaplain since 2005. And there are over 40 chaplains who administer or who practice or who help out at the university. Uh, it seems, it's an interesting one, of course. I suppose part of it is, you know, for many years, Harvard was seen as, um, I suppose, a, a central WASP establishment, very much founded because it was a Protestantly founded um, uh, institution. Now, what came out interesting about this was actually Bishop Robert Barron's reaction to it, which I thought was rather interesting. So people will know we are big fans of Robert Barron on this program, the Word yeah. of Fire Institute. Mm -hmm. Robert Barron is an auxiliary bishop of the Diocese of Los Angeles. And very much the new is seen by in some quarters as the modern Fulton Sheen. So 
it's interesting. So he wrote a piece in the New York Post about it. And he said it was a little, um, well, the expression he said was jumping the shark. He said he just absolutely odd is the way he's describing it. Um, you know, and as he said himself, it, he doesn't deny that many young people are drifting into unbelief and religious disaffiliation. Like one in five Americans now describes themselves as spiritual, but not religious. Um, but of course, and obviously churches and religious bodies should be reaching out to this demographic and having, you know, conversations or philosophical debates or whatever else, where, you know, they can engage with them. Um, however, the problem is, as, as, as Bishop Barron says it is, if a professed atheist counts as a chaplain, which is to say a leader of religious services in a chapel, then religion, the definition of religion, has quite obviously come to mean nothing at all. And this is the point that Bishop Barron is making. It's a distortion of religion to the level of chatting amicably about improving one's moral life and inner feelings, and very much drawing on the philosophy of Kant and, and, and other German uh, philosophers, particularly from the 19th century. And the problem is, of course, that, you know, it's like it's relativizing doctrine. It's like saying everyone is the same. Um, you know, that the most elements of doctrine, which is a belief in God, doesn't matter to be a chaplain, which obviously seems, you know, I'd agree with Robert Barron. It seems very contradictory. Um, you know, um, obviously, as Catholics, we have a particular understanding of what that, of what God is um, and the relationship with, you know, but at the same time, you know, we can define it. You can say what you want about it. You can affirm it. You can deny it. You can tell us we're crazy to believe in it. But it's a religion. It's but it's a religion, you know. Um, but it's interesting, interesting one that, and that was kind of the point that 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 Robert Barron made. He said at the end of the article, "I'm sure I, Epstein is a nice fellow. I have nothing against him, but I do want to urge his presumably religious colleagues at Harvard who elected him show a little self-respect. Being a chaplain has something to do with the worship of God, and you shouldn't be ashamed to say it." So I thought it was an interesting one um, to, to just that uh, came up during the week. So then the other main thing, John, just to bring to people's attention is, of course, the Pope's papal trip, which we mentioned last week. So in particular, it's the trip to Slovakia that I wanted to, to check this out. Yes, Slovakia that I wanted to bring to people's attention. Now, the first thing that jumped out at me, and John was laughing when I brought this up when we were talking about it at the start, of the, at the start before we started recording the podcast, and if anybody happened to look at the papal liturgies while they were in Slovakia, they weren't mass. They were divine liturgies. That's right. Eastern Orthodox and I Shane loves this. Good anyway. Oh, yes. <laughs> I thought, it, yes, given the context, given the whole debate that's going on about the Latin rite, the Latin mass yes. in our own tradition at the mm -hmm. moment, I thought it was an interesting, interesting dynamic. But of course, it also shows that the church breeds with two lungs. And this, he presided. Now he didn't. Now the Pope didn't actually say the liturgy. He, no. The technical, the technical term is he presided at the liturgy, the divine liturgy in 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 Slovakia. And you know, it's also a reminder to us, I suppose, that you know, it's 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 um, like sixty-two percent of the population belongs to the Catholic Church in Slovakia, and three point eight percent is Greek Catholic. Um, but they are their own particular. Um, what's the word that's used? They're their own particular uh, 
liturgical community. Okay. And they, they, which they, and they're, you know, they, 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 they accept they're in communion with Rome, but the way that they do their liturgies is their own tradition, their own history, and it draws on the Byzantine liturgy. So I thought that was an interesting one. Um, you know, it's, 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 and it's a reminder to us that the church, that that expression, breeding with two lungs, that was an expression of John Paul II when he was talking about the relationship between the Western church, which is the Latin rite, which is us, and all yeah. of the different churches in the East. And the fact that we profess the same belief that we, as I mentioned last week, when we had that talk about the guy, the, the, uh, the Metropolitan in talking at the Eucharistic Congress, mm. the Orthodox, we have a lot more in common than that which divides us. But also to remind us that though we are separate, we have a unity in the faith that we profess like two lungs in one body. And I just thought it was an interesting one because, of course, it draws on that analogy that we are the body of Christ. And is that the first time that there's been, that there's been um, a Pope, for want of a better word, uh, presiding in one of these liturgies? Um, in Slovakia, yes, but not, not Popes presiding at, at these type of liturgies. One of the most famous examples, actually, was during the Second Vatican Council. And... Pope John the Twenty-Third presided at a Byzantine liturgy that was celebrated during the Council, and the interesting thing that was a yes. So when you watch a Byzantine liturgy where a bishop is is officiating, you'll notice he's wearing a little crown. I saw that. Yeah. There's, a few, there's a few of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So, and uh, when John the Twenty-Third celebrated the Divine Liturgy at the Vatican. Uh, he wore the papal tiara instead of the crown. So it was the okay. first time the papal tiara was used in a liturgy because the old papal tiara wasn't actually a liturgical instrument. It wasn't used during mass, uh, but, it, but it, it substituted in, in that occasion. Now, if a pope or a bishop um, participates in a divine liturgy or an Eastern liturgy, they vest as normal. They vest yes, in their yes, own normal yes, vestments. So Pope yeah. Francis... So Pope Francis wore his mitre and he mm-hmm. carried his spectral cross and all the rest of it. Uh, but that was just, it was just an interesting one. So yeah, no, they, it's been done over the years. And people might remember, if you can remember back to the funeral of John Paul II. Yeah. So one of the last liturgical rites that was there was the, the, the bishops of the Greek, of the Orthodox community yes. churches in union with Rome. They gathered around the, the coffin of John Paul II, which was on the ground, if people remembered. Mm. And they did the final prayers in the Greek in the in in the in the Greek tradition okay. in the Byzantine. Uh, you know, so it was. It just it's a reminder to us that liturgy isn't uniformity and isn't necessarily the same in every place. I thought it was beautiful. Incidentally. It was. I watched some of the videos. It was lovely. And the singing, the singing. I'm sorry, but when it comes to Byzantine liturgies, we just we are we're we're. Particularly in Ireland, we would have so much to learn from it. They're chanting. And this isn't, well, obviously for a papal liturgy, it's, it's slightly different. Mm. But in, in a normal parish church, because I, I attended I, I attended one for a while because I couldn't get to a, a Latin rite <laughs> church. And it's, 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 the chanting is just done by the people in the pews. They know it. They sing it. It's not complicated. They do it every week. We make, such a, we make it such a big song and dance yeah. about the church and it's just get on with it now it's an interesting one as well just to link in with that so pope francis celebrated the divine the byzantine divine liturgy on the feast of the exaltation of the holy cross and he did make a number of comments he said that christianity without the cross is sterile and it was making the point that um crucifixes they're found all around us on our necks in homes in cars in pockets 
But what good is this unless we stop to look at the crucified Jesus and open our hearts to him? Unless we let ourselves be struck by the wounds he bears for our sake, unless our hearts swell with emotion and we weep before the God wounded for love of us. Witnesses of the cross have but one strategy, that of the master, humble love. And I just thought it was an interesting um, uh, homily that he gave and he reflected on why did Jesus die on the cross? Um, Instead, he chose to enter into that history to immerse himself in it. And that is why he chose the most difficult way possible so that no one on earth should ever be so desperate as not to be able to find him even there in the midst of anguish, darkness, abandonment, and the scandal of his or own misery. And it was an interesting one. I would say to people, it's on YouTube and it's on the Vatican website as well, just to see something a little different, um, you know, and just to see just to see how others do it. It's something that just to look out. Another thing is obviously as part of that, actually, um, and part of I presume it was part of the same, yes, it was the same, part of that same liturgy. He also made the point that the cross is not a flag to be waved nor a political symbol. Let us not reduce the cross to an object of uh, to much less a political symbol, to a sign of religious and social status, Francis said. Um, it was, and it's, it, at the time, the, the, the comments were seen as rebuke to some of the more populist politicians across Europe at the moment who are kind of wrapping themselves in the rosary, as they say. Mm-hmm. Uh, he said the cross signifies Christ's sacrifice, um, and he said the cross represents God's saving of all humanity. So the same, same, um, the same uh, homily that we talked about earlier. Then uh, today, of course, or sorry, the, the following day, then the fifteenth of September was the feast day of Our Lady of Sorrows, and he Pope Francis went to the Catholic National Catholic Shrine and reflected on Our Lady of Sorrows, and she's he said Mary, Mother of Sorrows, remains at the foot of the cross. She simply stands there. She does not run away or try to save herself or find ways to alleviate her grief. Here is the proof of true compassion to remain standing beneath the cross, to stand there weeping yet with the faith that knows that in her son, God transfigures pain and suffering and triumphs over death. And it was just, it's an interesting one uh, um, uh, to, 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 just again another interesting homily. Now I have to find it out, but um, the, the, the mass that was celebrated at the for the National Shrine of Our Lady of the Seven Sorrows—that's what it's called—very mm-hmm. appropriate because obviously that was the feast day that was in it. Um, I, I must find out. There was a there was a painting on the altar, and there's a very beautiful traditional statue of Our Lady holding the body of her son, like Pieta. Yeah. yeah. And then behind us, there's this painting. I presume it's of the crucifixion, but it's the most unusual, obtuse painting I have ever seen. And I must, uh, I'll find out more about it. And then finally, the last thing I want to bring people's attention to from the Pope's visit to Slovakia actually was the tribute he paid to the Jewish community. Uh, now, Pope Francis was in trouble before he went to Slovakia. He had done an interview somewhere along the way and he made a comment about the Torah, which is the first five books of the, mm, the, the, mm. what we call the first five books of the Old Testament. And there was a storm of controversy over it, even including the rabbi of Rome writing and criticizing whatever it was the Pope had said. However, he mended his bridges 
because he had a meeting with the Jewish community in Slovakia and he paid tribute to them because he thanked them for opening doors on the path to healing and fraternity. So he had, it was, um, it was an interesting one. He addressed them in a square in the center of um, Revne, I think is how it's called. And it's, um, and the, the square was, uh, the square itself, the location was interesting because um, it's, 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 it was, it was in front of the synagogue, which was demolished by the government in 1969 and then was subsequently rebuilt. And the Pope said that, you know, he described himself as having come to the encounter as a pilgrim, moved by the history of the square where a synagogue once stood alongside the cathedral of the coronation. And it's, he, he just, he reminded people that, you know, God's name was dishonored in a frenzy of hatred during the Second World War, when more than 100,000 Slovak Jews were killed. He said there was an effort to eradicate every trace of the community, and that this blasphemy continued uh, was is committed wherever the unique and distinctive dignity of the human person created in his image is violated. And he said, um, dear brothers and sisters, your history is our history. Your sufferings are our sufferings. Um, memory cannot and must not give way to forgetfulness, but there will be no lasting dawn of fraternity unless we have first shared and dispelled the darkness of the night that now is a time when the image of God shining forth in humanity must no longer be obscured, he said. Let us help one another in this effort. And um, I thank you, he said, for the doors you have opened on both sides. It is good to advance in truth and honesty along the fraternal path purification of memory to heal past wounds and to remember the good received and offered. And, recall, and he recalled that according to the Talmud, Whoever destroys a single individual destroys the whole world, while whoever sa saves a single individual saves the whole world. Every individual matters, and what you're doing, speaking to the Jewish community, what you are doing through your important exchange matters greatly. And he's, and I just thought it was an interesting, it was an interesting address from the Holy Father to the Jewish community. So, John, that's what I had in terms of this week. You had one or two things well, you had yeah, spotted. A few things that caught my eye as I listened to some of the talks of Pope, uh, Pope Francis on his visit to Slovakia last week. The first one was when the Pope addressed the Slovakian clergy. And one of the things he said was, the Pope notes that what we need most of all is a church that can walk together. They can tread the paths of life holding high the living flame of the gospel. The church, he continued, is not a fortress, a stronghold, a lofty castle, self-sufficient, looking out upon the world below. He said the church is a community that seeks to draw people to Christ with the joy of the gospel. And she is the leaven of God's kingdom and love and peace on earth. Therefore, the church must be humble like Jesus, who stripped himself of everything and became poor in order to make a switch. The Pope then praised the beauty of a humble church, noting that there is one that does not stand aloof from the world, viewing it with a detached gaze, but rather lives her life within the world, and is willing to share and to understand people's problems, hopes and expectations. In this way, the church will be able to escape from self-absorption, because the centre of the church is not the church, the Pope insisted. We need to become immersed in real lives of people and ask ourselves, what are the spiritual needs and expectations? What do they expect from the church? 
The Pope can continue to address the idea of freedom. Without freedom, there can be no true humanity, for human beings were created to be free. The Pope continued, Freedom is not something achieved automatically, once and for all. It's always a process, at times wearing and every need of being renewed. In this light, it is not enough to be free outwardly, or in structures of society, to be authentically free. This is because freedom demands personal responsibility for our choices, discernment and perseverance, which involves being challenged by concrete situations that need us to take the risk of making a decision instead of doing what we did in the past, or what public opinion decides on us. Pope Francis further notes that this idea can take hold in the Church too, where we sometimes want to have everything readily defined rather than being Christians and adults who think, consult their conscience and allow themselves to be challenged. He pointed out that in the spiritual life and in the life of the Church, we are tempted to be a peace that consoles us rather than the fire of the gospel that disturbs and transforms us. The Holy Father urged for training people for mature and free relationship with God. Addressing bishops and priests in particular, he said he encouraged them to help set people free from the rigid religiosity, insisting that no one should ever feel overwhelmed but rather everyone should discover the freedom of the gospel by gradually entering into a relationship with God, confident that it can bring their history and personal hurts into his presence, without fear or pretense, without feeling the need to protect their own image. Recalling the creativity of the people who made an opening in the roof to lower the paralytic man of Je- uh, to Jesus when they could not get through the roof, that's in Mark chapter 2, And the Pope encouraged new ways, means and languages to proclaim the gospel and to open up different spaces and experiment by different means. Concluding his address, the Holy Father encouraged all to persevere in the journey of freedom of the gospel, in the creativity of faith and in dialogue that has its source in the mercy of God, who made us brothers and sisters and calls us to be builders of harmony and peace. So just one last thing that caught my attention was when the Pope spoke to the people in Slovakia and asked in, and, and answering one of the uh, participants' questions, this was Petra, on how can young people overcome obstacles to God's mercy, the Pope said, really it's a matter of how we see things and of looking to what really matters. He wonders, if I were to ask you all what you think about when you go to confession, stating that he's quite sure your answer would be your sins. But sins are not really the centre of confession, he said. Our Father, who forgives everything, is at the centre. We do not go to confession to be punished and humiliated, but as children who run towards the Father's loving arms. To finish, the Pope said, I'll give you a little piece of advice. After each confession, sit for a few moments in order to remember the forgiveness you received. Those are just a few thoughts that um, struck me as I listened to the Pope uh, making his various addresses in Slovakia last week. We'll go for our second piece of music, and this time it's by the Lermic Gospel Choir, and this one is entitled Your Love Keeps Lifting Me Higher. So go back and join us in part three, where we read and reflect on the Word of God. Your love is 
is that one and only God. And now with His loving arms around me, I can stand up and face the world. That's why your love, your love can set me free. Keeps on lifting higher and higher. I your love, lifting me higher and So welcome back again to the third part of Come and See Inspirations. My name is John Keeley, still joined by Shane Ambrose. Thank you for sharing all those bits and pieces with us, Shane. So now at this part of the programme, uh, as usual, we reflect on the Word of God, read and reflect on the Word of God. And before that, Shane shares a prayer with us before reading and reflecting on Scripture. Thanks, Shane. Lord, we thank you for putting us in the presence of your Word, which you inspired in your prophets. May we approach this Word reverently, attentively, and humbly. May we not despise this Word, but receive all it has to say to us. We know that our hearts are closed, often incapable of comprehending the simplicity of your word. Send your spirit to us, that receiving the word in truth and simplicity, our lives may be transformed by it. Let us not be resistant, Lord. May your word penetrate us like a two-edged sword. May our hearts be open to it. Let not our eyes be closed and our minds wander, but may we give ourselves entirely to this listening. We ask this, Father, in union with Mary, who used to recite the Psalms through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Thank you for that, Jen. So now we'll read the Gospel for today, which is taken from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, verse 30 to 37. After leaving the mountain, Jesus and his disciples made their way through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, because he was instructing his disciples. He was telling them, The Son of Man will be delivered into the hands of men. They will put him to death. And three days after he has been put to death, he will rise again. But they did not understand what he said and were afraid to ask him. They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What are you arguing? What were you arguing about on the road? And they said nothing, because they had been arguing which of, which of them was the greatest. So he sat down, called the twelve to him, and said, If anyone wants to be first, he must make himself last of all, and servant of all. He then took a little child, set him in front of them, put his arms around him, and said to them, Anyone who welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And anyone who welcomes me welcomes not me, but the one who sent me. The Gospel for today, uh, the Gospel from, from Mark. Shane, you might share a thought with us, please. Yeah, so we're back, obviously, with John. We're continuing, rather, with John's or Mark's Gospel this week. I beg your pardon. Um, so it's, a, it's an interesting one to reflect on. Obviously, it's also one of these Gospels which is beloved of children's uh, Bible stories, obviously. Um, so it's one of these ones, I think, that um, 
you know, we can be overly familiar with it as well to a certain extent. Um, and it also, it's one, I suppose, that we can very easily misunderstand, um, which is the, the, the idea of what's being asked of us in, in this week's gospel. Um, and I suppose it's, it's, it's continuing on from last week where he's talking about what's going to happen to the Son of Man. So it's continuing on what, you know, preparing the disciples what's, what's going to happen. He's preparing himself for the journey to Calvary. And is now facing that way um, and instructing his disciples in that regard. And then, of course, there's this whole issue of who's the greatest. Now, Jesus obviously knew well what they were arguing about on the road. But obviously, he's trying to make the point. So he sat down, called the 12 to him and said, if anyone wants to be first, he must make himself last of all and servant of all. Anyone who welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And anyone who welcomes me welcomes not me, but the one who has sent me. There's two things, I suppose, there for us, and it's very challenging, and it's, well, it's something which Pope Francis has picked up on, it's something which Pope Benedict picked up on, um, which is the reminder to us that leadership and, and, and being part of a community, a Christian community, is to be of service to each other. And that whole idea that, you know, it, it very much turns it on its head and if anyone wants to be first, he must make himself last of all and servant of all. And it's so counterintuitive to the world that we live in and our understanding of the world in general. And it's not just a modern thing. This is, this is in the time that Jesus was on earth and in the centuries and the millennia afterwards, this is one of the things that has made Christianity so different and countercultural. Now, it's very different in our world today, but we're, you know, we're, 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 we're more used to hearing the message proclaimed. But this idea that true Christian leadership is one of service, humble service, is something that is very difficult for us to hear and to understand. Because leadership in our world is very much seen as dog-eats-dog, macho kind of machismo getting ahead of the one of the other and kind of the strong personality the strong type taking the lead whereas now it's not to say that you you're you know but jesus is 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 shifting the focus ever so slightly and he's saying to us that you know the strong leader is one that can be humble enough to be a servant to the other that one that is comfortable in themselves that is sure of themselves to such an extent that they don't have to lord it over anybody else, that they don't have to be top dog all the time, but that they're in a position where they can be of service to others. And it's, I suppose when we hear it proclaimed in church, I suppose the problem is we, we look around at leadership in the church and sometimes that's not exactly what our experience has been. And then if we, and it's very hard then, to go outside and challenge the norms in a wider community when we don't have that particular example necessarily within our own faith community. But that's the challenge of this Sunday's Gospel for each of us. It's to figure out how do we respond and answer to that and how do we share that message very much out there. The other thing, of course, to focus on also is that last section there, which is the Anyone who welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and anyone who welcomes me welcomes not me, but the one who sent me. And of course, the important point that's been drawn out here, of course, is the fact that 
we are to be childlike, but not childish in terms of our um, relationship and openness to an experience of God. That invitation that's always there for us each week to turn back once again to a gracious and loving God that's waiting for us to find him and to embrace him. And sometimes it's the case that we get ourselves too caught up in our own adult concerns and our adult preoccupations. And that's, you know, that we need to sometimes let that go to be able to encounter truly the divine and the simple. Um, I suppose for me, one of the things that always strikes me about that is, you know, I, I know many people who have done a lot of theological studies, have studied philosophy and scripture and canon law and all the rest of that kind of thing. But I think myself, some of the best theologians in the world that I have ever met were under the age of seven because they had asked those questions, where is God? Who is God? And, where, and looking around and seeing the wonder of his creation that exists for us. So as we reflect on this Sunday's gospel, I suppose two things to think about. What is our leadership style and how does this compare to what Jesus asks of us? And then in terms of our openness to encountering the divine, do we have something to learn from the small ones, the smallies in our life? Thanks for that, Shane. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, just picking up on that, uh, and uh, just a, a little bit, and I'll read a paraphrase. I'll just quote what Father Frank, what Father Frank Dewitz, uh, Dewitz sent us this week in his lecture, the Vina Notes. What Father Frank says is, he said, he's quoting uh, part of the Gospel where he said he didn't want anyone to know because he was instructing his disciples, he was telling them the Son of Man will be delivered uh, into the hands of men, etc. He said, you might ask, is there any parallel between between Jesus wanted to set up his core group to pass on his message and our experience of the church and faith matters in our time? He said, you might ask yourself, will there be faith and church life in your parish in 30 to 40 years' time? Give that question some thought. It's a real question today. If you believe there will be, who do you think will keep it alive? Will it be all the people of your parish? Not likely. Isn't it far more likely to be kept alive by a core by a core of people committed to faith and church? Will you be in that core group? Do you get any sense that Jesus may be inviting you to be part of that core at this time? Try to ponder this in a, as a real call to you at this time. Take time on this. I believe that there is a need for that core of people in every parish community at this time. But if I could on to say, I don't necessarily mean a formal group, but a number of people committed to Christ and his message. Central to this is listening to Christ's word and letting the seed of it grow in your heart. He then took a little child and set him in front of him. What are your thoughts on Jesus' version of influence in his kingdom, the palace of this little child? I thought Father Frank's uh, few uh, few thoughts there would uh, give us um, give us fruit food for thought there this week. I mean, what's going to happen in our church in thirty or forty years' time? But I love towards the end uh, the sentence that he used. Central to it all is this listening 
to Christ's word and letting the seed of it grow in our heart. And isn't that what it's all about? Shane, thanks a lot for joining me this week. It's been a pleasure staying with you and listening to, to all those bits and pieces that you told us about around the world and also your reflections. And the saints for the week, even though there was a breakfast warning there in the middle, but should we can get over that anyway. Shane, thanks a lot. We might do it all again next week. In the meantime, there's a piece of music we might finish off with. Maybe I'd early. I don't think I've played this one before. It's, uh, it's from um, The Wings of Love and it's entitled Treasure in a Field. So next week for myself and Shane, thanks for joining us. Next week, please join us and come and see inspirations.buzzsprout.com. Bye for now. Bye. to see